Law 32. Play to People's Fantasies. Judgment. The truth is often avoided because it is ugly and unpleasant. Never appeal to truth and reality unless you are prepared for the anger that comes from disenchantment. Life is so harsh and distressing that people who can manufacture romance or conjure up fantasy are like oases in the desert. Everyone flocks to them. There is great power in tapping into the fantasies of the masses. Observance of the Law The city-state of Venice was prosperous for so long that its citizens felt their small republic had destiny on its side. In the Middle Ages and High Renaissance, its virtual monopoly on trade to the east made it the wealthiest city in Europe. Under a beneficent republican government, Venetians enjoyed liberties that few other Italians had ever known. Yet, in the 16th century, their fortunes suddenly changed. The opening of the New World transferred power to the Atlantic side of Europe, to the Spanish and Portuguese, and later the Dutch and English. Venice could not compete economically, and its empire gradually dwindled. The final blow was the devastating loss of a prized Mediterranean possession, the island of Cyprus, captured from Venice by the Turks in 1570. Now, noble families went broke in Venice, and banks began to fold. A kind of gloom and desperation settled over the citizens. They had known a glittering past, had either lived through it or heard stories about it from their elders. The closeness of the glory years was humiliating. The Venetians half believed that the goddess Fortune was only playing a joke on them, and that the old days would soon return. For the time being, though, what could they do? In 1589, rumors began to swirl around Venice of the arrival not far away of a mysterious man called Il Bragadino, a master of alchemy, a man who had won incredible wealth through his ability, it was said, to multiply gold through the use of a secret substance. The rumor spread quickly because a few years earlier, a Venetian nobleman passing through Poland had heard a learned man prophesy that Venice would recover her past glory and power if she could find a man who understood the alchemic art of manufacturing gold. And so, as word reached Venice of the gold this Bragadino possessed, he clinked gold coins continuously in his hands, and golden objects filled his palace. Some began to dream. Through him, their city would prosper again. Members of Venice's most important noble families accordingly went together to Brescia, where Bragadino lived. They toured his palace and watched in awe as he demonstrated his gold-making abilities, taking a pinch of seemingly worthless minerals and transforming it into several ounces of gold dust. The Venetian Senate prepared to debate the idea of extending an official invitation to Bragadino to stay in Venice at the city's expense. When word suddenly reached them that they were competing with the Duke of Mantua for his services, they heard of a magnificent party in Bragadino's palace for the Duke, featuring garments with golden buttons, gold watches, gold plates, and on and on. 
Worried they might lose Bragadino to Mantua, the Senate voted almost unanimously to invite him to Venice, promising him the mountain of money he would need to continue living in his luxurious style, but only if he came right away. Late that year, the mysterious Bragadino arrived in Venice. With his piercing dark eyes under thick brows and the two enormous black mastiffs that accompanied him everywhere, he was forbidding and impressive. He took up residence in a sumptuous palace on the island of Judeca, with the Republic funding his banquets, his expensive clothes, and all his other whims. A kind of alchemy fever spread through Venice. On street corners, hawkers would sell coal, distilling apparatus, bellows, how-to books on the subject. Everyone began to practice alchemy, everyone except Bragadino. The alchemist seemed to be in no hurry to begin manufacturing the gold that would save Venice from ruin. Strangely enough, this only increased his popularity and following. People thronged from all over Europe, even Asia, to meet this remarkable man. Months went by, with gifts pouring in to Bragadino from all sides. Still, he gave no sign of the miracle that the Venetians confidently expected him to produce. Eventually, the citizens began to grow impatient, wondering if he would wait forever. At first, the senators warned them not to hurry him. He was a capricious devil who needed to be cajoled. Finally, though, the nobility began to wonder, too, and the Senate came under pressure to show a return on the city's ballooning investment. Bragadino had only scorn for the doubters, but he responded to them. He had, he said, already deposited in the city's mint the mysterious substance with which he multiplied gold. He could use this substance up all at once and produce double the gold, but the more slowly the process took place, the more it would yield. If left alone for seven years, sealed in a casket, the substance would multiply the gold in the mint thirty times over. Most of the senators agreed to wait to reap the gold mine Bragadino promised. Others, however, were angry. Seven more years of this man living royally at the public trough? And many of the common citizens of Venice echoed these sentiments. Finally, the alchemist's enemies demanded he produce a proof of his skills, a substantial amount of gold, and soon. Lofty, apparently devoted to his art, Bragadino responded that Venice, in its impatience, had betrayed him and would therefore lose his services. He left town, going first to nearby Padua, then, in 1590, to Munich, at the invitation of the Duke of Bavaria, who, like the entire city of Venice, had known great wealth but had fallen into bankruptcy through his own profligacy and hoped to regain his fortune through the famous alchemist's services. And so Bragadino resumed the comfortable arrangement he had known in Venice, and the same pattern repeated itself. Interpretation The young Cypriot Mamunia had lived in Venice for several years before reincarnating himself as the alchemist Bragadino. He saw how gloom had settled on the city, how everyone was hoping for a redemption from some indefinite source. 
At first, Mamonia did not use vulgar demonstrations to convince people of his alchemic skill. His sumptuous palace, his opulent garments, the clink of gold in his hands, all these provided a superior argument to anything rational. And these established the cycle that kept him going. His obvious wealth confirmed his reputation as an alchemist, so that patrons like the Duke of Mantua gave him money, which allowed him to live in wealth, which reinforced his reputation as an alchemist, and so on. Only once this reputation was established, and dukes and senators were fighting over him, did he resort to the trifling necessity of a demonstration. By then, however, people were easy to deceive, they wanted to believe. The Venetian senators who watched him multiply gold wanted to believe so badly that they failed to notice the glass pipe up his sleeve from which he slipped gold dust into his pinches of minerals. Brilliant and capricious, he was the alchemist of their fantasies, and once he had created an aura like this, no one noticed his simple deceptions. People rarely believe that their problems arise from their own misdeeds and stupidity. Someone or something out there is to blame, the other, the world, the gods, and so salvation comes from the outside as well. Had Bragadino arrived in Venice armed with a detailed analysis of the reasons behind the city's economic decline and of the hard-nosed steps that it could take to turn things around, he would have been scorned. The reality was too ugly and the solution too painful, mostly the kind of hard work that the citizens' ancestors had mustered to create an empire. Fantasy, on the other hand, in this case the romance of alchemy, was easy to understand and infinitely more palatable. To gain power, you must be a source of pleasure for those around you, and pleasure comes from playing to people's fantasies. Never promise a gradual improvement through hard work. Rather, promise the moon, the great and sudden transformation, the pot of gold. Keys to Power Fantasy can never operate alone. It requires the backdrop of the humdrum and the mundane. It is the oppressiveness of reality that allows fantasy to take root and bloom. In 16th century Venice, the reality was one of decline and loss of prestige. The corresponding fantasy described a sudden recovery of past glories through the miracle of alchemy. While the reality only got worse, the Venetians inhabited a happy dream world in which their city restored its fabulous wealth and power overnight, turning dust into gold. The person who can spin a fantasy out of an oppressive reality has access to untold power. As you search for the fantasy that will take hold of the masses, then, keep your eye on the banal truths that weigh heavily on us all. Never be distracted by people's glamorous portraits of themselves and their lives. Search and dig for what really imprisons them. Once you find that, you have the magical key that will put great power in your hands. Remember, the key to fantasy is distance. The distant has a lure and promise, seems simple and problem-free. What are you offering, then, should be ungraspable. 
Never let it become oppressively familiar. It is the mirage in the distance, withdrawing as the sucker approaches. Never be too direct in describing the fantasy. Keep it vague. As a forger of fantasies, let your victim come close enough to see and be tempted, but keep him far away enough that he stays dreaming and desiring. Law 33. Discover each man's thumbscrew. Judgment. Everyone has a weakness, a gap in the castle wall. That weakness is usually an insecurity, an uncontrollable emotion or need. It can also be a small secret pleasure. Either way, once found, it is a thumbscrew you can turn to your advantage. Finding the Thumbscrew, a strategic plan of action. We all have resistances. We live with a perpetual armor around ourselves to defend against change and the intrusive actions of friends and rivals. We would like nothing more than to be left to do things our own way. Constantly butting up against these resistances will cost you a lot of energy. One of the most important things to realize about people, though, is that they all have a weakness, some part of their psychological armor that will not resist, that will bend to your will if you find it and push on it. Some people wear their weaknesses openly. Others disguise them. Those who disguise them are often the ones most effectively undone through that one chink in their armor. In planning your assault, keep these principles in mind. Pay attention to gestures and unconscious signals. As Sigmund Freud remarked, no mortal can keep a secret. If his lips are silent, he chatters with his fingertips. Betrayal oozes out of him at every pore. This is a critical concept in the search for a person's weakness. It is revealed by seemingly unimportant gestures and passing words. The key is not only what you look for, but where and how you look. Everyday conversation supplies the richest mine of weaknesses, so train yourself to listen. Start by always seeming interested. The appearance of a sympathetic ear will spur anyone to talk. A clever trick, often used by the 19th century French statesman Talleyrand, is to appear to open up to the other person, to share a secret with them. It can be completely made up. Or it can be real, but of no great importance to you. The important thing is that it should seem to come from the heart. This will usually elicit a response that is not only as frank as yours, but more genuine. A response that reveals a weakness. If you suspect that someone has a particular soft spot, probe for it indirectly. If, for instance, you sense that a man has a need to be loved, Openly flatter him. If he laps up your compliments, no matter how obvious, you are on the right track. Train your eye for details. How someone tips a waiter. What delights a person. The hidden messages in clothes. Find people's idols. The things they worship and will do anything to get. Perhaps you can be the supplier of their fantasies. Find the helpless child. Most weaknesses begin in childhood, before the self builds up compensatory defenses. 
Perhaps the child was pampered or indulged in a particular area, or perhaps a certain emotional need went unfulfilled. As he or she grows older, the indulgence or the deficiency may be buried, but never disappears. Knowing about a childhood need gives you a powerful key to a person's weakness. One sign of this weakness is that when you touch on it, the person will often act like a child. Be on the lookout, then, for any behavior that should have been outgrown. If your victims or rivals went without something important, such as parental support when they were children, supply it, or its facsimile. If they reveal a secret taste, a hidden indulgence, indulge it. In either case, they will be unable to resist you. Look for contrasts. An overt trait often conceals its opposite. People who thump their chests are often big cowards. A prudish exterior may hide a lascivious soul. The uptight are often screaming for adventure. The shy are dying for attention. By probing beyond appearances, you will often find people's weaknesses in the opposite of the qualities they reveal to you. Find the weak link. Sometimes in your search for weaknesses, it is not what, but who, that matters. In today's versions of the court, there is often someone behind the scenes who has a great deal of power, a tremendous influence over the person superficially on top. These behind-the-scenes power brokers are the group's weak link. Win their favor, and you indirectly influence the king. Alternatively, even in a group of people acting with the appearance of one will, as when a group under attack closes ranks to resist an outsider, there is always a weak link in the chain. Find the one person who will bend under pressure. Fill the void. The two main emotional voids to fill are insecurity and unhappiness. The insecure are suckers for any kind of social validation. As for the chronically unhappy, look for the roots of their unhappiness. The insecure and the unhappy are the people least able to disguise their weaknesses. The ability to fill their emotional voids is a great source of power and an indefinitely prolongable one. Feed on uncontrollable emotions. The uncontrollable emotion can be a paranoid fear, a fear disproportionate to the situation, or any base motive such as lust, greed, vanity, or hatred. People in the grip of these emotions often cannot control themselves, and you can do the controlling for them. Observance of the Law Arabella Huntington wife of the great late-nineteenth-century railroad magnate Collis P. Huntington, came from humble origins and always struggled for social recognition among her wealthy peers. When she gave a party in her San Francisco mansion, few of the social elite would show up. Most of them took her for a gold digger, not their kind. Because of her husband's fabulous wealth, art dealers courted her, but with such condescension, they obviously saw her as an upstart. Only one man of consequence treated her differently, the dealer Joseph Duveen. For the first few years of Duveen's relationship with Arabella, he made no effort to sell expensive art to her. Instead, he accompanied her to fine stores, 
chatted endlessly about queens and princesses he knew, on and on. At last, she thought, a man who treated her as an equal, even a superior, in high society. Meanwhile, if Duveen did not try to sell art to her, he did subtly educate her in his aesthetic ideas, namely, that the best art was the most expensive art. And after Arabella had soaked up his way of seeing things, Duveen would act as if she always had exquisite taste, even though before she met him her aesthetics had been abysmal. When Collis Huntington died in 1900, Arabella came into a fortune. She suddenly started to buy expensive paintings by Rembrandt and Velasquez, for example, and only from Duveen. Years later, Duveen sold her Gainsborough's Blue Boy for the highest price ever paid for a work of art at the time, an astounding purchase for a family that previously had shown little interest in collecting. Interpretation Joseph Duveen instantly understood Arabella Huntington and what made her tick. She wanted to feel important, at home in society, Intensely insecure about her lower-class background, she needed confirmation of her new social status. Duveen waited. Instead of rushing into trying to persuade her to collect art, he suddenly went to work on her weaknesses. He made her feel that she deserved his attention not because she was the wife of one of the wealthiest men in the world, but because of her own special character, and this completely melted her. Duveen never condescended to Arabella. Rather than lecturing to her, he instilled his ideas in her indirectly. The result was one of his best and most devoted clients, and also the sale of the blue boy. People's need for validation and recognition, their need to feel important, is the best kind of weakness to exploit. First, it is almost universal. Second, exploiting it is so very easy. All you have to do is find ways to make people feel better about their taste, their social standing, their intelligence. Once the fish are hooked, you can reel them in again and again for years. You are filling a positive role, giving them what they cannot get on their own. They may never suspect that you are turning them like a thumbscrew, and if they do, they may not care because you are making them feel better about themselves, and that is worth any price. Law 34 Be royal in your own fashion. Act like a king to be treated like one. Judgment The way you carry yourself will often determine how you are treated. In the long run, Appearing vulgar or common will make people disrespect you. For a king respects himself and inspires the same sentiment in others. By acting regally and confident of your powers, you make yourself seem destined to wear a crown. Observance of the Law When Christopher Columbus was trying to find funding for his legendary voyages, many around him believed he came from the Italian aristocracy. This view was passed into history through a biography written after the explorer's death by his son, which describes him as a descendant of a Count Colombo of the castle of Cucaro in Montferrat. 
Columbo, in turn, was said to be descended from the legendary Roman general Colonius, and two of his first cousins were supposedly direct descendants of an emperor of Constantinople. An illustrious background indeed, but it was nothing more than illustrious fantasy, for Columbus was actually the son of Domenico Colombo, a humble weaver who had opened a wine shop when Christopher was a young man, and who then made his living by selling cheese. Columbus himself had created the myth of his noble background, because from early on he felt that destiny had singled him out for great things, and that he had a kind of royalty in his blood. Accordingly, he acted as if he were indeed descended from noble stock. After an uneventful career as a merchant on a commercial vessel, Columbus, originally from Genoa, settled in Lisbon. Using the fabricated story of his noble background, he married into an established Lisbon family that had excellent connections with Portuguese royalty. Through his in-laws, Columbus finagled a meeting with the king of Portugal, João II, whom he petitioned to finance a westward voyage aimed at discovering a shorter route to Asia. In return for announcing that any discoveries he achieved would be made in the king's name, Columbus wanted a series of rights, the title Grand Admiral of the Ocean Sea, the office of viceroy over any lands he found, and 10% of the future commerce with such lands. All of these were to be hereditary and for all time. Columbus made these demands even though he had previously been a mere merchant. He knew almost nothing about navigation. He could not work a quadrant, and he had never led a group of men. In short, he had absolutely no qualifications for the journey he proposed. Furthermore, his petition included no details as to how he would accomplish his plans, just vague promises. When Columbus finished his pitch, Joao II smiled. He politely declined the offer but left the door open for the future. Here, Columbus must have noticed something he would never forget. Even as the king turned down the sailors' demands, he treated them as legitimate. He neither laughed at Columbus nor questioned his background and credentials. In fact, the king was impressed by the boldness of Columbus's requests and clearly felt comfortable in the company of a man who acted so confidently. The meeting must have convinced Columbus that his instincts were correct. By asking for the moon, he had instantly raised his own status, for the king assumed that unless a man who set such a high price on himself were mad, which Columbus did not appear to be, he must somehow be worth it. A few years later, Columbus moved to Spain. Using his Portuguese connections, he moved in elevated circles at the Spanish court receiving subsidies from illustrious financiers and sharing tables with dukes and princes. To all these men, he repeated his request for financing for a voyage to the West and also for the rights he had demanded from Joao II. Some, such as the powerful Duke of Medina, wanted to help but could not since they lacked the power to grant him the titles and rights he wanted. But Columbus would not back down. He soon realized that only one person could meet his demands, Queen Isabella. In 1487, he finally managed a meeting with the Queen, 
and although he could not convince her to finance the voyage, he completely charmed her and became a frequent guest in the palace. In 1492, the Spanish finally expelled the Moorish invaders who centuries earlier had seized parts of the country. With the wartime burden on her treasury lifted, Isabella felt she could finally respond to the demands of her explorer friend, and she decided to pay for three ships, equipment, the salaries of the crews, and a modest stipend for Columbus. More important, she had a contract drawn up that granted Columbus the titles and rights on which he had insisted. The only one she denied, and only in the contract's fine print, was the 10% of all revenues from any lands discovered, an absurd demand, since he wanted no time limit on it. Had the clause been left in, it would eventually have made Columbus and his heirs the wealthiest family on the planet. Columbus never read the fine print. Satisfied that his demands had been met, Columbus set sail that same year in search of the passage to Asia. Before he left, he was careful to hire the best navigator he could find to help get him there. The mission failed to find such a passage, yet when Columbus petitioned the Queen to finance an even more ambitious voyage the following year, she agreed. By then, she had come to see Columbus as destined for great things. Interpretation Columbus had an amazing power to charm the nobility, and it all came from the way he carried himself. He projected a sense of confidence that was completely out of proportion to his means. Nor was his confidence the aggressive, ugly self-promotion of an upstart. It was a quiet and calm self-assurance. In fact, it was the same confidence usually shown by the nobility themselves. The powerful in the old-style aristocracies felt no need to prove or assert themselves. Being noble, they knew they always deserved more and asked for it. With Columbus, then, they felt an instant affinity, for he carried himself just the way they did, elevated above the crowd, destined for greatness. Understand, it is within your power to set your own price. How you carry yourself reflects what you think of yourself. If you ask for little, shuffle your feet and lower your head, people will assume this reflects your character. But this behavior is not you. It is only how you have chosen to present yourself to other people. You can just as easily present the Columbus front, buoyancy, confidence, and the feeling that you were born to wear a crown. Keys to Power As children, we start our lives with great exuberance, expecting and demanding everything from the world. This generally carries over into our first forays into society as we begin our careers. But as we grow older, the rebuffs and failures we experience set up boundaries that only get firmer with time. Coming to expect less from the world, we accept limitations that are really self-imposed. We start to bow and scrape and apologize for even the simplest of requests. The solution to such a shrinking of horizons is to deliberately force ourselves in the opposite direction, to downplay the failures and ignore the limitations, to make ourselves demand and expect as much as the child. 
To accomplish this, we must use a particular strategy upon ourselves. Call it the strategy of the crown. The strategy of the crown is based on a simple chain of cause and effect. If we believe we are destined for great things, our belief will radiate outward just as a crown creates an aura around a king. This outward radiance will infect the people around us who will think we must have reasons to feel so confident. People who wear crowns seem to feel no inner sense of the limits to what they can ask for or what they can accomplish. This too radiates outward. Limits and boundaries disappear. Use the strategy of the crown and you will be surprised how often it bears fruit. Take as an example those happy children who ask for whatever they want and get it. Their high expectations are their charm. Adults enjoy granting their wishes, just as Isabella enjoyed granting the wishes of Columbus. Law 35. Master the Art of Timing. Judgment. Never seem to be in a hurry. Hurrying betrays a lack of control over yourself and over time. Always seem patient as if you know that everything will come to you eventually. Become a detective of the right moment. Sniff out the spirit of the times, the trends that will carry you to power. Learn to stand back when the time is not yet ripe and to strike fiercely when it has reached fruition. Observance of the Law Starting out in life as a nondescript French seminary school teacher, Joseph Fouché wandered from town to town for most of the decade of the 1780s, teaching mathematics to young boys. Yet he never completely committed himself to the church, never took his vows as a priest. He had bigger plans. Patiently waiting for his chance, he kept his options open. And when the French Revolution broke out in 1789, Fouché waited no longer. He got rid of his Cossack, grew his hair long, and became a revolutionary. For this was the spirit of the times. To miss the boat at this critical moment could have spelt disaster. Fouché did not miss the boat. Befriending the revolutionary leader Robespierre, he quickly rose in the rebel ranks. In 1792, the town of Nantes elected Fouché to be its representative to the National Convention, created that year to frame a new constitution for a French republic. When Fouché arrived in Paris to take his seat at the convention, a violent rift had broken out between the moderates and the radical Jacobins. Fouché sensed that in the long run, neither side would emerge victorious. Power rarely ends up in the hands of those who start a revolution or even of those who further it. Power sticks to those who bring it to a conclusion. That was the side Fouché wanted to be on. His sense of timing was uncanny. He started as a moderate, for moderates were in the majority. When the time came to decide on whether or not to execute Louis XVI, however, he saw that the people were clamoring for the king's head, so he cast the deciding vote for the guillotine. Now he had become a radical. Yet, as tensions came to the boil in Paris, 
he foresaw the danger of being too closely associated with any one faction, so he accepted a position in the provinces where he could lay low for a while. A few months later, he was assigned to the post of proconsul in Lyon, where he oversaw the execution of dozens of aristocrats. At a certain moment, however, he called a halt to the killings, sensing that the mood of the country was turning, and despite the blood already on his hands, the citizens of Lyon hailed him as a savior from what had become known as the Terror. So far, Fouché had played his cards brilliantly, but in 1794, his old friend Robespierre recalled him to Paris to account for his actions in Lyon. Robespierre had been the driving force behind the Terror. He had sent heads on both the right and the left, rolling, and Fouché, whom he no longer trusted, seemed destined to provide the next head. Over the next few weeks, a tense struggle ensued, while Robespierre railed openly against Fouché, accusing him of dangerous ambitions and calling for his arrest. The crafty Fouché worked more indirectly, quietly gaining support among those who were beginning to tire of Robespierre's dictatorial control. Fouché was playing for time. He knew that the longer he survived, the more disaffected citizens he could rally against Robespierre. He had to have broad support before he moved against the powerful leader. He rallied support among both the moderates and the Jacobins, playing on the widespread fear of Robespierre. Everyone was afraid of being the next to go to the guillotine. It all came to fruition on July 27th. The convention turned against Robespierre, shouting down his usual lengthy speech. He was quickly arrested, and a few days later it was Robespierre's head, not Fouché's, that fell into the baskets. When Fouché returned to the convention after Robespierre's death, he played his most unexpected move. Having led the conspiracy against Robespierre, he was expected to sit with the moderates, but, lo and behold, he once again changed sides, joining the radical Jacobins. For perhaps the first time in his life, he aligned himself with the minority. Clearly, he sensed a reaction stirring. He knew that the moderate faction that had executed Robespierre and was now about to take power would initiate a new round of the terror, this time against the radicals. In siding with the Jacobins, then, Fouché was sitting with the martyrs of the days to come, the people who would be considered blameless in the troubles that were on their way. Taking sides with what was about to become the losing team was a risky gambit, of course, but Fouché must have calculated he could keep his head long enough to quietly stir up the populace against the moderates and watch them fall from power. And indeed, although the moderates did call for his arrest in December of 1795 and would have sent him to the guillotine, too much time had passed. The executions had become unpopular with the people, and Fouché survived the swing of the pendulum one more time. A new government took over, the Directoire. It was not, however, a Jacobin government, but a moderate one more moderate than the government that had reimposed the terror. Fouché, the radical, had kept his head, but now he had to keep a low profile. 
He waited patiently on the sidelines for several years, allowing time to soften any bitter feelings against him. Then he approached the Directoire and convinced them he had a new passion, intelligence gathering. He became a paid spy for the government, excelled at the job, and in 1799 was rewarded by being made Minister of Police. Now he was not just empowered, but required to extend his spying to every corner of France, a responsibility that would greatly reinforce his natural ability to sniff out where the wind was blowing. One of the first social trends he detected, in fact, came in the person of Napoleon, a brash young general whose destiny he right away saw was entwined with the future of France. When Napoleon unleashed a coup d'etat on November 9, 1799, Fouché pretended to be asleep. Indeed, he slept the whole day. For this indirect assistance, it might have been thought his job, after all, to prevent a military coup. Napoleon kept him on as minister of police in the new regime. Over the next few years, Napoleon came to rely on Fouché more and more. He even gave this former revolutionary a title, Duke of Otranto, and rewarded him with great wealth. By 1808, however, Fouché, always attuned to the times, sensed that Napoleon was on the downswing. His feudal war with Spain, a country that posed no threat to France, was a sign that he was losing a sense of proportion. Never one to be caught on a sinking ship, Fouché conspired with Talleyrand to bring about Napoleon's downfall. Although the conspiracy failed, Talleyrand was fired. Fouché stayed, but was kept on a tight leash. It publicized a growing discontent with the emperor, who seemed to be losing control. By 1814, Napoleon's power had crumbled and Allied forces finally conquered him. The next government was a restoration of the monarchy in the form of King Louis XVIII, brother of Louis XVI. Fouché, his nose always sniffing the air for the next social shift, knew Louis would not last long. He had none of Napoleon's flair. Fouché once again played his waiting game, laying low, staying away from the spotlight. Sure enough, in February of 1815, Napoleon escaped from the island of Elba, where he had been imprisoned. Louis XVIII panicked. His policies had alienated the citizenry who were clamoring for Napoleon's return. So Louis turned to the one man who could maybe have saved his hide, Fouché the former radical who had sent his brother Louis XVI to the guillotine, but was now one of the most popular and widely admired politicians in France. Fouché, however, would not side with a loser. He refused Louis's request for help by pretending that his help was unnecessary, by swearing that Napoleon would never return to power, although he knew otherwise. A short time later, of course, Napoleon and his new citizen army were closing in on Paris. Seeing his reign about to collapse, feeling that Fouché had betrayed him, and certain that he did not want this powerful and able man on Napoleon's team, King Louis ordered the minister's arrest and execution. On March 16, 1815, policemen surrounded Fouché's coach on a Paris boulevard. 
Was this finally his end? Perhaps, but not immediately. Fouché told the police that an ex-member of government could not be arrested on the street. They fell for the story and allowed him to return home. Later that day, though, they came to his house and once again declared him under arrest. Fouché nodded, but would the officers be so kind as allow a gentleman to wash and to change his clothes before leaving his house for the last time? They gave their permission. Fouché left the room, and the minutes went by. Fouché did not return. Finally, the policemen went into the next room, where they saw a ladder against an open window leading down to the garden below. That day and the next, the police combed Paris for Fouché, but by then, Napoleon's cannons were audible in the distance, and the king and all the king's men had to flee the city. As soon as Napoleon entered Paris, Fouché came out of hiding. He had cheated the executioner once again. Napoleon greeted his former minister of police and gladly restored him to his old post. During the 100 days that Napoleon remained in power until Waterloo, it was essentially Fouché who governed France. After Napoleon fell, Louis XVIII returned to the throne, and like a cat with nine lives, Fouché stayed on to serve in yet another government. By then, his power and influence had grown so great that not even the king dared challenge him. Interpretation In a period of unprecedented turmoil, Joseph Fouché thrived through his mastery of the art of timing. He teaches us a number of key lessons. First, it is critical to recognize the spirit of the times. Fouché always looked two steps ahead, found the wave that would carry him to power, and rode it. You must always work with the times, anticipate their twists and turns, and never miss the boat. Sometimes the spirit of the times is obscure. Recognize it not by what is loudest and most obvious in it, but by what lies hidden and dormant. Look forward to the Napoleons of the future rather than holding on to the ruins of the past. Second, recognizing the prevailing winds does not necessarily mean running with them. Any potent social movement creates a powerful reaction, and it is wise to anticipate what that reaction will be, as Fouché did after the execution of Robespierre. Rather than ride the cresting wave of the moment, wait for the tide's ebb to carry you back to power. Upon occasion, bet on the reaction that is brewing and place yourself in the vanguard of it. Finally, Fouché had remarkable patience. Without patience as your sword and shield, your timing will fail and you will inevitably find yourself a loser. When the times were against Fouché, he did not struggle, get emotional, or strike out rashly. He kept his cool and maintained a low profile, patiently building support among the citizenry, the bulwark in his next rise to power. Whenever he found himself in the weaker position, he played for time, which he knew would always be his ally if he was patient. Recognize the moment then to hide in the grass or slither under a rock as well as the moment to bare your fangs and attack. 
Keys to Power There are three kinds of time for us to deal with. Each presents problems that can be solved with skill and patience. First, there is long time, the drawn-out, years-long kind of time that must be managed with patience and gentle guidance. Our handling of long time should be mostly defensive. This is the art of not reacting impulsively, of waiting for opportunity. Next, there is forced time, the short time that we can manipulate as an offensive weapon, upsetting the timing of our opponent. Finally, there is end time, when a plan must be executed with speed and force. We have waited, found the moment, and must not hesitate. Long time. When you force the pace out of fear and impatience, you create a nest of problems that require fixing, and you end up taking much longer than if you had taken your time. Hurriers may occasionally get there quicker, but papers fly everywhere, new dangers arise, and they find themselves in constant crisis mode, fixing the problems that they themselves have created. Sometimes not acting in the face of danger is your best move. You wait. You deliberately slow down. As time passes, it will eventually present opportunities you had not imagined. Waiting involves controlling not only your own emotions, but those of your colleagues who, mistaking action for power, may try to push you into making rash moves. In your rivals, on the other hand, you can encourage this same mistake if you let them rush headlong into trouble while you stand back and wait. You will soon find ripe moments to intervene and pick up the pieces. You do not deliberately slow time down to live longer or to take more pleasure in the moment, but the better to play the game of power. First, when your mind is uncluttered by constant emergencies, you will see further into the future. Second, you will be able to resist the baits that people dangle in front of you and will keep yourself from becoming another impatient sucker. Third, you will have more room to be flexible. Opportunities will inevitably arise that you had not expected and would have missed had you forced the pace. Fourth, you will not move from one deal to the next without completing the first one. To build your power's foundation can take years. Make sure that foundation is secure. Do not be a flash in the pan. Success that is built up slowly and surely is the only kind that lasts. Forced time. The trick in forcing time is to upset the timing of others, to make them hurry, to make them wait, to make them abandon their own pace, to distort their perception of time. By upsetting the timing of your opponent while you stay patient, you open up time for yourself which is half the game. Making people wait is a powerful way of forcing time, as long as they do not figure out what you are up to. You control the clock. They linger in limbo and rapidly come unglued, opening up opportunities for you to strike. The opposite effect is equally powerful. You make your opponents hurry, start off your dealings with them slowly, then suddenly apply pressure, making them feel that everything is happening at once. People who lack the time to think will make mistakes, 
so set their deadlines for them. This was the technique Machiavelli admired in Cesare Borgia, who, during negotiations, would suddenly press vehemently for a decision, upsetting his opponent's timing and patience. For who would dare make Cesare wait? End time. You can play the game with the utmost artistry, waiting patiently for the right moment to act, putting your competitors off their form by messing with their timing. But it won't mean a thing unless you know how to finish. Do not be one of those people who look like paragons of patience, but are actually just afraid to bring things to a close. Patience is worthless unless combined with a willingness to fall ruthlessly on your opponent at the right moment. You can wait as long as necessary for the conclusion to come, but when it comes, it must come quickly. Use speed to paralyze your opponent, cover up any mistakes you might make, and impress people with your aura of authority and finality. With the patience of a snake charmer, you draw the snake out with calm and steady rhythms. Once the snake is out, though, would you dangle your foot above its deadly head? There is never a good reason to allow the slightest hitch in your endgame. Your mastery of timing can really only be judged by how you work with end time, how you quickly change the pace and bring things to a swift and definitive conclusion. Law 36. Disdain things you cannot have. Ignoring them is the best revenge. Judgment. By acknowledging a petty problem, you give it existence and credibility. The more attention you pay an enemy, the stronger you make him. And a small mistake is often made worse and more visible when you try to fix it. It is sometimes best to leave things alone. If there is something you want but cannot have, show contempt for it. The less interest you reveal, the more superior you seem. Observance of the Law In the year 1527, King Henry VIII of England decided he had to find a way to get rid of his wife, Catherine of Aragon. Catherine had failed to produce a son, a male heir who would ensure the continuance of his dynasty, and Henry thought he knew why. He had read in the Bible the passage, And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Before marrying Henry, Catherine had married his older brother Arthur, but Arthur had died five months later. Henry had waited an appropriate time, then had married his brother's widow. Catherine was the daughter of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, and by marrying her, Henry had kept alive a valuable alliance. Now, however, Catherine had to assure him that her brief marriage with Arthur had never been consummated. Otherwise, Henry would view their relationship as incestuous and their marriage as null and void. Catherine insisted that she had remained a virgin through her marriage to Arthur, and Pope Clement VII supported her by giving his blessing to the union, which he could not have done had he considered it incestuous. Yet, after years of marriage to Henry, Catherine had failed to produce a son, and in the early 1520s she had entered menopause. 
To the king, this could only mean one thing. She had lied about her virginity. Their union was incestuous, and God had punished them. There was another reason why Henry wanted to get rid of Catherine. He had fallen in love with a younger woman, Anne Boleyn. Not only was he in love with her, but if he married her, he could still hope to sire a legitimate son. The marriage to Catherine had to be annulled. For this, however, Henry had to apply to the Vatican. But Pope Clement would never annul their marriage. By the summer of 1527, rumors spread throughout Europe that Henry was about to attempt the impossible, to annul his marriage against Clement's wishes. Catherine would never abdicate, let alone voluntarily enter a nunnery, as Henry had urged her. But Henry had his own strategy. He stopped sleeping in the same bed with Catherine, since he considered her his sister-in-law, not his lawful wife. He insisted on calling her Princess Dowager of Wales, her title as Arthur's widow. Finally, in 1531, he banished her from court and shipped her off to a distant castle. The Pope ordered him to return her to court on pain of excommunication, the most severe penalty a Catholic could suffer. Henry not only ignored this threat, he insisted that his marriage to Catherine had been dissolved, and in 1533 he married Anne Boleyn. Clement refused to recognize the marriage, but Henry did not care. He no longer recognized the Pope's authority, and proceeded to break with the Roman Catholic Church, establishing the Church of England in its stead, with the king as the head of the new church. And so, not surprisingly, the newly formed Church of England proclaimed Anne Boleyn, England's rightful queen. The Pope tried every threat in the book, but nothing worked. Henry simply ignored him. Clement fumed. No one had ever treated him so contemptuously. Henry had humiliated him, and he had no power of recourse. Even excommunication, which he constantly threatened, but never carried out, would no longer matter. Catherine, too, felt the devastating sting of Henry's disdain. She tried to fight back, but in appealing to Henry, her words fell on deaf ears, and soon they fell on no one's. Isolated from the court, ignored by the king, mad with anger and frustration, Catherine slowly deteriorated and finally died in January of 1536 from a cancerous tumor of the heart. Interpretation When you pay attention to a person, the two of you become partners of sorts, each moving in step to the actions and reactions of the other. In the process, you lose your initiative. It is a dynamic of all interactions. By acknowledging other people, even if only to fight with them, you open yourself to their influence. Had Henry locked horns with Catherine, he would have found himself mired in endless arguments that would have weakened his resolve and eventually worn him down. Had he set out to convince Clement to change his verdict on the marriage's validity, or tried to compromise and negotiate with him, he would have gotten bogged down in Clement's favorite tactic, playing for time, promising flexibility, but actually getting what popes always got, their way. Henry would have none of this. He played a devastating power game, total disdain. 
By ignoring people, you cancel them out. This unsettles and infuriates them. But since they have no dealings with you, there is nothing they can do. This is the offensive aspect of the law. Playing the card of contempt is immensely powerful, for it lets you determine the conditions of the conflict. The war is waged on your terms. This is the ultimate power pose. You are the king, and you ignore what offends you. Watch how this tactic infuriates people. Half of what they do is to get your attention, and when you withhold it from them, they flounder in frustration. Keys to Power If choosing to ignore enhances your power, it follows that the opposite approach, commitment and engagement, often weakens you. By paying undue attention to a puny enemy, you look puny. And the longer it takes you to crush such an enemy, the larger the enemy seems. When Athens set out to conquer the island of Sicily in 415 BC, a giant power was attacking a tiny one. Yet by entangling Athens in a long, drawn-out conflict, Syracuse, Sicily's most important city-state, was able to grow in stature and confidence. Finally, defeating Athens, it made itself famous for centuries to come. In recent times, President John F. Kennedy made a similar mistake in his attitude to Fidel Castro of Cuba. His failed invasion at the Bay of Pigs in 1961 made Castro an international hero. When you are attacked by an inferior, deflect people's attention by making it clear that the attack has not even registered. Look away or answer sweetly, showing how little the attack concerns you. Similarly, when you yourself have committed a blunder, the best response is often to make less of your mistake by treating it lightly. Remember, the powerful responses to niggling, petty annoyances and irritations are contempt and disdain. Never show that something has affected you or that you are offended. That only shows you have acknowledged a problem. Contempt is a dish that is best served cold and without affection. Law 37. Create compelling spectacles. Judgment. Striking imagery and grand symbolic gestures create the aura of power. Everyone responds to them. Stage spectacles for those around you. Then, full of arresting visuals and radiant symbols that heighten your presence. Dazzled by appearances, no one will notice what you are really doing. Observance of the Law In 1536, the future king, Henry II of France, took his first mistress, Diane de Poitiers. Diane was 37 at the time and was the widow of the Grand Seneschal of Normandy. Henry, meanwhile, was a sprightly lad of seventeen, who was just beginning to sow his wild oats. At first, their union seemed merely platonic, with Henry showing an intensely spiritual devotion to Diane. But it soon became clear that he loved her in every way, preferring her bed to that of his young wife, Catherine de' Medici. In 1547, King Francis died and Henry ascended to the throne. 
This new situation posed perils for Diane de Poitiers. She had just turned 48, and despite her notorious cold baths and rumored youth potions, she was beginning to show her age. Now that Henry was king, perhaps he would return to the queen's bed and do as other kings had done, choose mistresses from the bevy of beauties who made the French court the envy of Europe. He was, after all, only twenty-eight, and cut a dashing figure. But Diane did not give up so easily. She would continue to enthrall her lover, as she had enthralled him for the past eleven years. Diane's secret weapons were symbols and images to which she had always paid great attention. Early on in her relationship with Henry, she had created a motif by intertwining her initials with his to symbolize their union. The idea worked like a charm. Henry put this insignia everywhere, on his royal robes, on monuments, on churches, on the façade of the Louvre, then the royal palace in Paris. Diane's favorite colors were black and white, which she wore exclusively, and wherever it was possible, the insignia appeared in these colors. Everyone recognized the symbol and its meaning. Soon after Henry took the throne, however, Diane went still further. She decided to identify herself with the Roman goddess Diana, her namesake. Diana was the goddess of the hunt, the traditional royal pastime, and the particular passion of Henry. Equally important, in Renaissance art, she symbolized chastity and purity. For a woman like Diane to identify herself with this goddess would instantly call up those images in the court, giving her an air of respectability. Symbolizing her chaste relationship with Henry, it would also set her apart from the adulterous liaisons of royal mistresses past. To effect this association, Diane began by completely transforming her castle at Anay. She raised the building's structure and in its place erected a magnificent Doric-columned edifice modeled after a Roman temple. It was made in white Normandy stone, flecked with black silex, reproducing Diane's trademark colors of black and white. The insignia of her and Henry's initials appeared on the columns, the doors, the windows, the carpet. Meanwhile, symbols of Diana, crescent moons, stags, and hounds, adorned the gates and facade. Inside, enormous tapestries depicting episodes in the life of the goddess lay on the floors and hung on the walls. In the garden stood the famous Goujon sculpture Diane Chasseresse, which is now in the Louvre, and which had an uncanny resemblance to Diane de Poitiers. Paintings and other depictions of Diana appeared in every corner of the castle. Anne overwhelmed Henry, who soon was trumpeting the image of Diane de Poitiers as a Roman goddess. In 1548, when the couple appeared together in Lyon for a royal celebration, the townspeople welcomed them with a tableau vivant depicting a scene with Diana the Huntress. France's greatest poet of the period, Pierre de Ronsard, began to write verses in honor of Diana. Indeed, a kind of cult of Diana sprang up, all inspired by the king's mistress. It seemed to Henry that Diane had given herself a kind of divine aura, 
and as if he were destined to worship her for the rest of his life. And until his death in 1559, he did remain faithful to her, making her a duchess, giving her untold wealth, and displaying an almost religious devotion to his first and only mistress. Interpretation Diane de Poitiers, a woman from a modest bourgeois background, managed to captivate Henry for over 20 years. By the time she died, she was well into her 60s, yet his passion for her only increased with the years. She knew the king well. He was not an intellectual, but a lover of the outdoors. He particularly loved jousting tournaments with their bright pennants, brilliantly caparisoned horses, and beautifully dressed women. Henry's love of visual splendor seemed childlike to Diane, and she played on this weakness of his at every opportunity. Most astute of all was Diane's appropriation of the goddess Diana. Here she took the game beyond physical imagery into the realm of the psychic symbol. It was quite a feat to transform a king's mistress into an emblem of power and purity, but she managed it. Without the resonance of the goddess, Diane was merely an aging courtesan. With the imagery and symbolism of Diana on her shoulders, she seemed a mythic force destined for greatness. You, too, can play with images like these, weaving visual clues into an encompassing gestalt, as Diane did with her colors and her insignia. Establishing a trademark like these to set yourself apart. Then take the game further. Find an image or symbol from the past that will neatly fit your situation and put it on your shoulders like a cape. It will make you seem larger than life. Keys to Power Words put you on the defensive. If you have to explain yourself, your power is already in question. The image, on the other hand, imposes itself as a given. It discourages questions, creates forceful associations, resists unintended interpretations, communicates instantly, and forges bonds that transcend social differences. Words stir up arguments and divisions. Images bring people together. They are the quintessential instruments of power. The symbol has the same force, whether it is visual or a verbal description of something visual. The symbol of the Sun King, as explained by Louis XIV, who is known by that epithet, can be read on many layers, but the beauty of it is that its associations required no explanation, spoke immediately to his subjects, distinguished him from all other kings, and conjured up a kind of majesty that went far beyond the words themselves. The symbol contains untold power. Things change in the game of symbols. It is probably no longer possible to pose as a sun king or to wrap the mantle of Diana around you. Yet, you can associate yourself with such symbols more indirectly. And, of course, you can make your own mythology out of figures from more recent history, people who are comfortably dead but still powerfully associative in the public eye. The idea is to give yourself an aura, a stature that your normal, banal appearance simply will not create. By herself, Diane de Poitiers had no such radiant powers, 
She was as human and ordinary as most of us, but the symbol elevated her above the human lot and made her seem divine. Use the power of symbols as a way to rally, animate, and unite your troops or team. Always find a symbol to represent your cause. The more emotional associations, the better. The best way to use images and symbols is to organize them into a grand spectacle that awes people and distracts them from unpleasant realities. This is easy to do. People love what is grand, spectacular, and larger than life. Appeal to their emotions and they will flock to your spectacle in hordes. The visual is the easiest route to their hearts.